Hi everyone, this is another localization news uh, brought to you by myself and my two lovely guests. This is a casual chat where we talk about the news that we found related to localization on social media or anywhere else. And we want to share it with you and then we want to discuss and share also our experience when it comes to the topics. So this time I have two lovely guests. I have Vierka Richards from Acorby. It's your comeback. Hi Vierka. Hello. Great to be here. And we have a new guest, Ilan. Hello, Ilan. Hello. Hello. It's your first time and it's great to have you here because you messaged me on LinkedIn and you gave me some feedback about the episode that you <laughs> heard. And I invited you here to be a guest because why not? I think we should turn this into a community podcast. So I'm very happy that you're here. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Um, yeah, five things you didn't know about Elon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is that the first article? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the one. Yeah. So uh, I'm uh, married and a proud father of three. Um, I'm a chemical engineer uh, by education. Wow. And somehow, like yourselves, I uh, found my way into the magical world of uh, language. I've been trying to get out of it ever since, but <laughs> it didn't really work. So, so here we are, twenty years later. Maybe, maybe your future career will be like uh, what was his name? The Breaking Bad guy. He was also a chemical oh, no. engineer, right? <laughs> he was teaching, so maybe <laughs> eventually you will start cooking drugs. Uh, so you are the founder and the CEO of Baguette Translations, right? At first, I didn't make the connection because. Baguette to me seems like a French thing, but you live in Israel, right? That's correct. How did this happen to be? But at, um, in a, in another life, I, I was in France, and, <laughs> where I was born and, and grew up. So, so that was the origin of Baguette. It was to uh, to provide French language services. Mm -hmm. After one, we evolved, but uh, that that's history. Have you since then expanded into other languages, or is it still just French? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We're uh, we're doing we're serving our local base uh, with uh, other languages, and, mm -hmm. uh, and we're still um, providing French um, to uh, other NLVs. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have, we're playing on both uh, both planes. Okay, I would uh, propose that we start with your article, Ilan. I think it's the uh, best one to start with. Then I'll follow up with my, uh, because it's related to UX. I'll talk a little bit more about colors and how the colors affect localization and the culture adaptation. And then finally, we'll wrap up with Vera's article about COVID translations. All right. So it took me a little bit of time to choose an article, I must say. I, I really wanted to talk about project management mm -hmm. uh, just because I'm writing a little piece myself on the subject, but that's another <laughs> subject. <laughs> and everything I found was a bit too short to be shared uh, today, so that will be for another time. There you go. I invited myself to another lock news. Ooh, look at you, look at you. <laughs> I think this will be the first episode where we don't have an article from Natalie Kelly. 
<laughs> oh, so <laughs> exactly. I know that was one yeah, of the articles funny. that you were considering, Elon, right? I yeah, that, that, that's yeah. the natural fallback, you know. It's uh, yeah. she, she's producing so much. It is. Yeah, it's like it, it's taking her less time to to write than for me to to read it. So, <laughs> so, um, so I decided this time not to go the easy path, and uh, also because she was celebrated already uh, in previous editions. So um, I went back to, to the basics, and that's uh, Christina Rachevas. Um, she, she proposes a, a monthly suggestions of readings. Uh, she's a head of localization at Skyscanner, so the um, flight uh, organization app. So, like, nobody's flying anywhere anymore. <laughs> she must have a lot of time. Yeah, that's and, why they have time she, to write articles, right? And, and she suggests her readings and listenings. And uh, I don't think she ever mentioned uh, your podcast. So, Christina, that's, that's your chance to do something fair and deserve. It's really to, uh, to, to refer to Andre's podcast. So... This month, she pointed out an article by uh, Ayelet Kessel, who is a translator with uh, Booking.com. And uh, it's entitled, Why You Should Want Your Localization Team to Change Your Copy. So, a, basically, a, she's taken us on a journey to the perfect localization land. And not surprisingly, how it's been done at, uh, at Booking.com. And she sets the goal of localization uh, straight from the beginning. Like forwards, you go global, but you be local. So you need to translate your message identical to regional copy, but completely resonating with the local market. And, and there you have two possible outcomes. Uh, word for word translation, very identical to the original, or very local, seamless, natural, but nothing like the original. And conclusion, that's okay. That's exactly what you want. Uh, something that reads well and conveys the idea. So, I don't know. Maybe uh, I've been in the industry for, for too long already. Uh, and I've been there and I've done that. And I've seen it several times also. But uh, I, I'm not sure it's, uh, it's anything new. Um, it's uh, definitely not... Uh, without reminding us, another article by Natalie Kelly <laughs> from from mid June uh, on the why it's important to add uh, native content for a balanced uh, marketing mix. Very interesting, uh, like uh, build on translation, but also on uh, on local writing. Uh, but this dilemma of Either you have a word-for-word translation or a good job, which is disconnected from the source. I think we're not there anymore. Uh, I mean, and obviously, if not everyone is a, is at a professional level where they can deliver a fluent translation, who read well and, and don't sound like translator, then maybe you should consider another provider. We're here. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> What's going on, guys? But, 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 you know, that that's very interesting because that conception of what is a good translation has not always been the same throughout time. And, and there, what we consider as good now, like natural and flowing and fluent and that, uh, once upon a time, the, con- the exact opposite was the perfect translation. So, so it's, it's also changing with time. So basically what she says is uh, you need to change the tone, not the voice. 
So um, that's a that's one of the unmistakable uh, components of any self-respecting style guide. You know, the tone of voice, like uh, we're crisp and fresh and friendly, or we're energetic and fun. Now you go do something with that. It's <laughs> the, the the whole idea is to adapt your tar- to your target culture in order to render the same feeling of the user in the original one. So she she compares chatbot messages um, that uh, were translated into uh, Japanese and Hebrew, and she checks the, the differences and how um, how the 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 idea is going to be rendered uh, and the values uh, in the text, which is hundred percent localization. And that's what it's all about. I see one caveat with that is that, and I want to, to, to quote, uh, the brain's voice is the brain's personality. The localization process shouldn't change the brain's voice. It should bring it to life. Localization experts should adapt, interpret, and translate the tone based on the culture, the context, and the values that the brain is trying to communicate to its audience. Very nice. But concepts like uh, brain personality or, uh, or, or bringing the values of the brand to translating the values the brand is trying to communicate to its audience. I mean, this is so abstract. And, and, and it, it's actually, it's not abstract. It's, it's very concrete, but it results of so much work of so many internal reflections and meetings and work sessions in which translators didn't take part. Uh, they, they weren't involved at that stage. So now you, you condensed all that in one sentence, like we're crisp and friendly and whatever, and you do something with that. Um, it's chances you're going to do something good with, with a, a style guide and brain book and, and the new flyer are close to nil because you, you need to have been involved somehow. And which is a subject, an idea she's going to develop afterwards, the integration of the translator with the UX, with all the team, because collaboration is really key. So, but um, wouldn't, wouldn't you say, Ilan, that that's the ideal project, ideal way to localize? And in today's world, many clients do not want this type of workflow, this type of um, this this type of um, engagement, even with the LSP they work with. So I have been part of a project like that as well, and it was to this day is the best project I was involved on because of the involvement and the true partnership and the. Like you said, we were creating uh, alternate content for each language or alternate source for each mm-hmm. language to be able to match the culture, match uh, the tone, and make sure that uh, even changed, um, you know, all around how that product talked to the end user rather than passive, it was active voice for some countries because it made felt more, uh, more, more personal to them so so that was a wonderful ideal project i worked on for four years and and it worked like you said there was engagement with all the linguists with the client with the marketing team with the pseudo log team everything worked like an orchestra 
and it was a very expensive project. And in my experience over 20 years, it was like a unicorn project because most other <laughs> companies just want it quick, want it fast, make sure it's, you know, done. Um, and the quality is, you know, reviewed and scrutinized based to, based on the grammar. Uh, but beyond that, they don't let you into their kitchen too far. Uh, and that's, I think that's commendable of booking that they are really doing it right. As I, you know, I feel that's the right way. They're not really, uh, trying to skip any steps and, and they will have a very good product or a very good, uh, content, uh, where, where, you know, our society right now is so fast. Everybody wants everything instant and the companies don't have time to wait for us to, you know, have these long discussions about the, the culture. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I am totally, um, a big believer in having these type of clients and, and giving it all the due diligence because um, then you can make product truly localized for you know for the local so so Abs- so yeah absolutely. yeah what's kind of my two two bits here <laughs> um, I I totally join you there uh, it's um, I'm trying as much in our daily practice I'm trying to 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 take my translators with me to to the client. So we're not actually walking in, but we're, we're on calls or maybe now in Corona times, we would be on Zoom, but we're, we're all there and, and we need to, we need to feel, we need to absorb, we need to, to, to get all that non-said, uh, which is so important, which is so much a part of the message, uh, in probably more than, than the, just the text. But that said, as you mentioned, uh, you also have those uh, those clients, which it, it's not related to the size of the of the company or its exposure or its uh, um, uh, ambitions internationally. Um, so we we have very ambitious clients who want to 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 spend the whole world, and they say no, there's no no time for for anything. So just take it, send it back tomorrow. That'll be fine. And they, they just refuse any any contact with the now working as a also uh, both at the, uh, in direct contact with the client and as an SLV. I also have the the other perspective or where you're uh, you're stopped by your MLV client in the middle, and and any any even the queries. You know, I'm not I'm not talking about the uh, the, the beginning of the project and the style guide and so. But the queries, uh, they, they just don't pass them on. And, and, and you know they answer themselves and, and, and there's no contact. There's a willingness and it's said, no, you won't be in contact with our client and for whatever reason. So yeah, no, that's... Uh, yeah, I, and I think that's a shame because, um, you know, again, I, I've seen where if you put the actual translator in touch with the client, you know, as a SLV or, you know, as a LSP, um, that translator has a different type of commitment even to the project they work on because they now are vested even personally into um, understanding and doing a good job, staying with the project, staying with the, with the job because they find it very interesting what they do. So 
So I think it's a shame. I always, uh, even to the clients, I tell the clients, you have access to all of the, you know, all of our linguists, all of our reviewers. And on the side of the client, it's excellent when the client's linguist team or in-country team can get together with the, with the translators or reviewers because that's how they can best match whatever the message they want to resonate in the given country. So, so yeah, I, I, again, you see all different types of, um, um, clients needs, uh, coming to us. I think in today's date though, I was very disappointing during that, um, machine translation wave, you know, it was like machine translation, everything and, and just, you know, mountains of content and, and that lasted few years. And then now I'm seeing what that, you know, article described so nicely, more of a, okay, let's, let's look at our content and let's divide it into the content which should be uh, crafted and handcrafted and and um, target the, the customer or the end user. And then we have that other content, nobody really reads anyways, but we have to have it done. <laughs> and let's machine translate the heck out of it. So, so I am seeing a little bit of a shift within our industry that the clients are now spending more time on looking at their content and applying better logic to how they want to treat that content. Yeah. So that's, I think, that's what I'm seeing. I don't know, uh, Elon, do you see that as well, that the clients are kind of dividing their content and choosing to maybe even cre create um, content, content rate for the individual um, languages from scratch without, you know, much of the source? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not the, it's far from being the majority, of course, but it is a, it, it is a trend that, that we can feel that they're, they're asking for, for creative writing uh, copy straight from, uh, from scratch in, in some languages, yeah, for some mm -hmm. types of contents. It's kind of music, often, music to our ears, this type of stuff. I mean, I love mm -hmm. that. <laughs> it's, it's, um, and I think also one other thing in that article where, um, that ideal process is described where you just really make sure that you reflect the culture and, and so on. Uh, and you take a lot more liberties with the text than you would normally do with translation. Um, one has to consider, uh, translation memories and what happens then when you have such a free approach. Um, how, you know, how is that going to be usable, um, from within the translation memories? So, um, I think in particular, um, that this type of free text, um, mm -hmm. And also looking at certain languages and how they perform even now with translation memories, you know, something like Korean or Japanese, where um, they want to be much freer with syntax than they're allowed to be with um, translation memory. That in itself is usually a problem because the end user feels that the translation, we don't 
when I even read it. And uh, the linguists would like to go free, but can't because it's delimited within the translation memory. So I think this is a similar issue with that free text and reusability. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So next, um, she's uh, bringing a second item uh, to the, the, the good uh, practices, which is uh, what they do at Booking is to personalize. So it, it, it does resonate with the basic know your client principle. Like, uh, obviously, it's not applicable to all products and all types of content, uh, and your user manual is not going to be easily personalized as opposed to emails or whatever. But uh, I'm not sure I, I understood well the nuance with uh, the first item because because this is what she writes. Personalization is a critical UX tool. It just means you're adapting your copy to the culture and lifestyle of your audience. But that's just what we said above. So, uh, or maybe she means that first you've uh, you've adapted your text to the culture and context and values, and now you're going to go one step further. Not sure. Yeah, it also uh, could mean, and I don't know how booking this in particular, I don't know that client, uh, not one of our clients. Um, so <laughs> I don't know, but um, sometimes what clients do, they have a portfolio of um, materials they repeat and on their site. So they have a, perhaps a product which is used by the whole family. So let's take a phone, for example, and you might have a, a, you know, father, mother, children, cousins, brothers, you know, so on. And you are, you have multiple assets. You have video, you have marketing, you have website, and you keep using this family throughout. So, you per personalize that you you give them names right and then make sure that brother in one asset is not used as a you know husband in another <laughs> asset <laughs> so so that's a level of personal you know personalizing that and you do that also not just for one family you you create these families for different locales so they look right for that locale you know so so that is the level of personification you can you can do. Same with um, phone numbers, for example. You you have to put in you know I'm talking about the phone right, but you you have to put in a phone number which doesn't work, not one which works. And I can tell you a funny story <laughs> with with that one where the client gave gave us set of phone numbers and said use these in your videos and you know. And, and localizing um, the content, and so we did, and and it was actually a phone number, <laughs> and people were phoning this poor person um, day and night <laughs> after the campaign rolled out. So, so those are, I think, more of a personal uh, touches, which can happen for each culture, building this kind of a um, persona deck to um, mm -hmm. to use those individual uh, local specific things you know maybe even references to to places to you know if you you have assets where you are localizing 
a product which was made in Seattle, and you have references to our Mount Rainier or Space Needle or something like that in Paris, you would want to use Eiffel Tower or something. So, uh, referring to the locale uh, and showing that you know your locale exactly, that's the third point she's mentioning. Um, so for instance, um, the Friday and Monday jokes, uh, they don't apply well when your work week is Sunday to Thursday. Uh, actually, they translate very well. You just have to change the day because we have the same jokes. But, uh, so, so, so yeah, understanding and, and taking care of, uh, I mean, being sure that you're, uh, implying your lookout. That's, that's important. Um, last, uh, she's, um, I, I, it's a little bit, uh, different, uh, in the structure of the article. It's uh, like a bonus. Uh, she reminds, uh, everyone, powers of B probably, that if you want to get a good job, localization will need context. They will need, uh, an understanding of the general picture, not just the picture of the, this document, but the, the whole idea of how you came to, to create that type of content. Basically, they want communication with other UX people and even more communication. So integration of the localization team, that's that's a must. And that's what uh, apparently they have. And uh, in one word, if you want to communicate well with your audience, you need to communicate extremely well with your team inside. So thank you, Ayelet, and thank you, Christina, for the referral, because it was a, a nice article. <laughs> yeah, very nice. I, one other thing I really liked in that article, too, is uh, the uh, tool they referred um, to compare the different uh, different locales and uh, their uh, different criteria they they compare per locale. I've been actually playing with that <laughs> to, yeah, see, <laughs> to see if it um, if it reflects what what I'm thinking. But uh, yeah, that's a very Does cool it? cool tool. Did did it reflect what you were what you were thinking? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some were surprising, but <laughs> so yeah. I, I am glad that somebody put something like that together. Yeah, that's nice. I still have some right. questions yeah. about this whole thing, guys. Because in my experience, I haven't had a chance to work in an environment where the client would work closely with the translators. And Ilan, you were referring to the meeting, that you like to take your translators to the meeting with the client. I'm wondering what kind of things you discuss. Like, is the client capable of sharing something useful for the translators? What is like your agenda? What are you trying to have your translators learn from the client? I run it pretty much exactly like what we're doing now. A casual conversation between a client and and the and the, the translators and I'm hosting and uh, facilitating. And the idea is to, to get the client speak about their product, speak about their company, speak about what they're doing in their own words. So we do that uh, as a, a, an interview. It's a webinar because it's mostly uh, not on-premises. And uh, the I just want to make them talk. Now, we do that in the language. So personally, I would do uh, French and whatever other language I, I could do. Um, but uh, I need uh, 
I need a matching uh, um, client. I mean, speaking <laughs> client as visa language, which is not always easy to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you can really, really feel how they how they speak about their product, and it's a uh, it's tremendous tremendous effect for for the translators to to understand their their subject from from firsthand. So would it be someone from the local office of your customer if yeah, you want them a, to speak the same um, language? That can be someone from the local office uh, there. That can be someone from the headquarters who is also a foreign uh, language speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a representative, not necessarily someone from the company. It uh, also happened that uh, uh, the, the the representative of the company abroad is a freelancer. So he's, he's linked to the company, but he's not per se a, mm-hmm. an employee. And um, and we, we, we had to talk. So... Really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Now, Novierka, you were talking about your unicorn project that you worked on, mm-hmm. and you said it's like a rare exception in our industry. Yeah, it is. Well, the, I, the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I know that Ilan, when you said first, when we started sharing about the article, you mentioned that um, sharing just like a brand voice or a style guide is not enough, but I think. From what I understood from Vierka, your project, it was expensive because there was a lot of this extra communication and this was like really recreating the articles from scratch or maybe inspired by the English source. Um, so if this is our ideal and just sharing the style guide is not enough, what do you think could be the balance between these two? Because I don't think that every project or every client has a has a will or the money to to have everybody right. just translate everything from scratch or just recreate the articles or yeah. even have these discussions with all the translators uh, for all your languages. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just going a little bit back to what Elon just said, um, getting the client and the translators in one place or one room is um, the benefits of that, you know, on the final, on the uh, end product. If you can manage that, that's excellent. I was, again, you know, in the past part of these vendor summits where a large client comes in in one location and invites all the vendors from all the different languages to attend. And it's amazing because the client would send maybe five to ten people and you have, you know, 150 linguists who come to talk just about their product, just about what they are translating. And the client comes in with the information on the product itself, on the vision of of that product, also on their mission, on their uh, forecast, what will happen. And the, the linguist is able and you know i was part of this where we were able to map the life of the string we called it so we took a string from the product and show them what happened to it from beginning to the end to the localized product where it shows up in the you know in the actual product so to be able to do that it was a three-day thing and um there were so many conversations, so much detail. Each lo- locale was able to talk about their challenges with the source, their challenges with the process, 
um, we were able to talk about the actual workflows and, you know, bug fixing and, and so on. So there was so much which went into that and the quality, of course, and um, management of the glossaries and things like that. that. So that is not normal and not possible with the way we are doing things mm-hmm. normally. And I think having the opportunity to always be able to meet with the team on the client side, meet with the match, at least if they have linguists in different countries and subsidiaries who speak the language, meeting with the linguist who is representing that locale or who's translating or reviewing, those type of connections are invaluable. And um, oftentimes, too, what I've been seeing is that when a company has a subsidiary in a locale, they're already putting out content in that locale on their own. So they have a subsidiary and they have a product or a service and they are marketing their way in that locale. That's oftentimes disconnected with the localization team in the headquarters, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I'm always trying to tell the client Let's, if you do have that, let's bring them in. Let's bring everyone in around that language to make sure that the terminology is consistent, to make sure the message is consistent, and, and, uh, try to have them have that dialogue and communication. And then, then after that, add that to the style guides, add as many examples to the style guides, you know, from the product and, not just making a generic style guide with grammar and, you know. So so um, all of those things are possible in a lot of the cases. I think the clients are spending a lot of money um, and they do want to have a good quality outcome and um, more more clients in the end and clients on their own. So so that's a that's a good good way where you can you don't have to spend as much and you can. I'm thinking that that would be actually a good way to A-B test the quality of your vendors <clears throat> if you compare the marketing materials created by the local office versus the localized one. You yeah. can see who does better. Maybe yeah. maybe the local office could actually learn something from the, from the localization team. Yeah. This reminded me of something different. It's even worse thing is uh, I have experienced that uh, local offices of a certain big client they used to create their own source material and they used to use their own localization vendors that they probably just Googled somewhere. So they were not right. using the, the central localization team for their localization needs. And so there would be completely separate TMs, <clears throat> completely separate glossary, <clears throat> not using the, the main tools that the main hub has. You know, everything was just done just by pure, uh, pure freestyle. So it's mm-hmm. also probably not yeah. good. Yeah, I think we both, Elon, probably seen that too. I have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. I'm wondering one more thing. When you guys were talking about making the connection between the translators uh, and the client, and both of you work technically in the middle of this chain, I know that when I had an uh, interview with Patricia, uh, she used to be the director of localization at CA Technologies for a long time. And from her interview, I got the impression that they were very innovative. And her idea 
about localization was that everything between the content creators or the developers and the translators should be automated as much as possible. And she was actually trying to create this communication channel directly between the translator at the end and the person who actually creates the content. So like you, Elan, were saying like about the query management, like being delayed or even like stopped somewhere, like this would totally open the channel between the translator and the, the content creator. Yeah, so, absolutely. It, it's not uh, it's not incompatible, uh, and and I I don't believe. Uh, I mean, obviously, the first thing you think about is that they're going to put me out of business, and and they, they're going to work directly, and then I'm out. <laughs> so uh, no, because uh, fortunately we have a little more added value than just bringing a name to the table, and uh, so. Um, so it's it's good. It's it's good that you have free communication. Uh, look, if your if your client wants to to go direct and find freelancers, they can do it. I mean, everybody knows where to find a freelancer, and don't have to be in industry forever to to manage that. So so it's not. Uh, I I don't think we should not do the right thing out of fear. It's uh, there. There is much to to gain by collaborating and uh, and if we lose a client then it's okay it's <laughs> yeah, it wasn't meant to be i completely agree i think clients don't want to manage mm -hmm. you know 15 yeah. translators and reviewers it's uh they are not in business of managing that so mm -hmm. yeah i i have no fear that they just go and you know make that direct connection Mm -hmm. Okay. And when Virka, you mentioned translation memory and whether it's the right technology when you're creating a content from scratch or like heavily transcreating it. Uh, what is your experience when it comes to tools? I don't yeah, have much experience with transcreation, so. Yeah, like with transcreation in particular, um, yeah, it's, uh, you should not. So again, I am kind of a big promoter of dividing your content. So taking your content, which can be, if it's a product related, yes, you, you can use, you can use the cat tool, no problem, use those translation memories and, you know, but when you start transcreating or creating content, you know, just loosely based on the source, um, you can put that in a different type of translation memory if you want to see if that will be useful uh, in the future anywhere or on similar projects, but not making it part of your uh, main translation memory for the language. So, mm -hmm. so I think that's that's where I would go with that. Um, and again, you know, there are levels of transcreation too. You know, you can be very, very free or, or it's just some parts and phrases you are, you are creating. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I think, I think that's the approach. And in the example of your unicorn project, how did it actually came to be? Like, was it your suggestion or was the client? So it was actually, yeah, so it was, a really good collaboration with the client. We would sit down and think about the ways how we could do this, you know, even better. Um, so, 
So some of the things we were doing, and again, this is not replicable because, you know, who has the time and the money, but uh, th we were taking the source string and based on like when we received the source strings in a tool, it came in a tool, uh, we were commenting them from the language perspective. So, for example, if there were numerals, we would comment, oh, okay, this needs to be split up because in some languages, these numerals inflect based on, you know, what is the numeral. And uh, then also for this language, it needs to, this is completely wrong, wrong message we need. To, so we would adjust the content. We would have time to analyze and adjust the content. Um, one thing I can tell you, which is kind of interesting and where this is where that article uh, from Booking, uh, what it reminded me of. So in this, in this prod project, um, there was a term, uh, well, it was a phone. So, so there was a ringtone, right? And the ringtone was two-step. And in, in Spanish, they translated it as paso doble. Because, you know, <laughs> and so we were going through and we, we saw that, like, it's a ringtone. It's not going to sound like possible. It's going to sound like a two-step. <laughs> and so those are the type of, like, personifications you can, you need to be um, aware of. You know, there were some other funny ones, which I probably cannot even say here. But, uh, <laughs> but that detail and all the... Uh, um, you know, what we all try. I mean, one other technology we developed, especially for this particular project, was adapting um, English, U.S. English to British English. So we made a tool ourselves where we can automatically replace um, just, you know, the, the English uh, terminology for the British English terminology and uh, and then we you know went in and, and um, the post editing was much faster so so those that were, and this was like six seven years ago so so it was at that time quite revolutionary for us to do it on our own but uh, when you have such a trust from a client and so much freedom you can really come up with you know the details to give it those personal touches. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, my final question, have you ever had experience where translators could even have input on the way the source is created? Yes, yeah. So, so that was what I was saying. When we were doing the analysis of the source, it was from linguistic perspective where the linguist would come and say, okay, like, for example, Japanese. Japanese, you cannot tell Japanese that they're wrong, right? And this product says, would say, you made a mistake. And Japanese said, no, 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 that cannot happen. So that had to say a mistake happened, you know, like something, something happened and there might be a problem but you cannot say you made a mistake you know that that would be really offensive so so this is where the linguist came in and analyzed the stories and said okay for japan we want it to be more you know passive for for you know for german we want it to be formal for spanish for south america we want to be completely you know 
uh, free and informal. And, and we were able to adapt all of those, those strings which needed to be changed, which made impact, you know, something you see on your phone every day that, that would be an important string. And so that would be adapted for that language. Are you talking about adapting the the target language or the source? Because the source, the, the, the source. source. So, so we there would, were multiple sources. Yes, there would ah. be there would be customized source for mm. different languages. Not for all, you know. Some languages didn't care, um, but uh, the ones which care, which there's number, you know, number of them. French being one, very particular. Um, so so. Um, for those languages, we would have alternate sources, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it came from, you know, from our team. It wouldn't come from the client. They look to us for, for uh, doing that research, giving that expertise, and, and adapting that source. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Must be quite a challenge to manage your files with the several sources. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was a unicorn, as I said, you know, but, uh, <laughs> do you, do you even maybe even have that as a case study somewhere on your websites? Um, I know we don't have it on the website, um, but I do have a case study actually. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was Elon's article. I'll try to connect with my article that I had prepared for quite a long time, but I never got to share it. Um, so this one is about UX UI design uh, differences between cultures in USA and Japan. This article is by Courtney Bogus. And I'll be reading it off my cell phone because I'm recording my desktop. So I have these pretty lovely faces for video. So uh, this article talks about four different things. I'll start with the first one. It's about colors and what the colors, what the different colors mean in different cultures. One of the first thing that is mentioned here in this article is the color red. So red means for all of us here on the call, probably danger. It's used in many of the signs which refer to danger, but for example, in Asian culture, a red color refers to prosperity, good fortune, and vitality. Uh, other example of different color meanings are orange. Uh, so orange in Middle Eastern means mourning or loss, which typically for us in Western culture is associated with black color. Uh, then we have mourning in Indian, which is represented by a brown color. And when we talk about the black color, so for us in Western culture, it typically means intimidation, death, or mourning. Uh, but for example, in, again, Far Eastern culture, so Asian, it means health, prosperity, and stability. So quite the opposite. Uh, there are a few examples mentioned here, very practical. The first one is about McDonald's, and I'll just try to portray what is shown here. So the American website of McDonald's, uh, and as we all know, the McDonald's logo is yellow and red, but the McDonald's website in the US uh, typically uses yellow for most of their UI elements, uh, not red. And you can only see red from the 
pictures of their products, let's say the, the fries, the holder for the fries. So as we going back to what we what I shared before, the red color is typically for us associated with something uh, dangerous or we should be cautious. So that's why McDonald's doesn't use much of a red color on their website, despite the fact that the red color is part of their brand. But on the other hand, uh, when we look at the Japanese McDonald's website, uh, they use completely different approach. Uh, their banners and their images have red background color. There's a lot more red than the American version. And this is again because the in Asian culture, red means something positive. The other example when it comes to colors is the website of Rakuten. So Rakuten, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, it's a Japanese e-commerce website. So again, the Japanese website is full of red, but when Rakuten wanted to expand internationally, when they created the US version of the website, uh, they used a gradient color of red and pink and violet. So even like from the first glance, when I look at the images, which unfortunately I cannot share with you over the audio, the websites actually do look like they're from two different brands. <laughs> the Japanese one is completely full of red and the American one is purplish, pinkish. So these are the colors. I'm wondering if in your experience, to me, this is like a high level of localization where you can actually affect the colors of something. I'm wondering if you guys in your experience have ever come across any opportunity to affect the color of something. So for me, yes. And usually in the image localization. So when you are localizing different, different uh, screenshots or, um, you know, something like that, <laughs> that, um, or we do desktop publishing on, on, for example, some presentations for different uh, companies which are presented at conferences in different uh, in different locales. That's where um, that comes in play. We we do also advise on the color uh, whether it's appropriate for that uh, for that particular locale. Mm -hmm. Does it come from your own experience, or do some of the clients even have? let's say DTP guidelines yeah, some for clients, their own target. Right, lines. right. Some clients have their own DTP guidelines for locale. Mm -hmm. uh, we do too. We have that internally as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Nice. I, I don't recall uh, I've been ever exposed to a, a case where you we would redesign a website to, to better adapt for, for the locale. And... I must say I'm a little bit skeptical because, yes, I understand uh, the the theory of it. I mean, obviously, when I see a red button and a, and a green button, I know which one is for stop and which one is for play, and something not good is going to happen if I play click on the on the red one. Do the users really? Uh, would they would they buy less McDonald's if they they had a red uh, website in uh, in the U.S. or uh, more whitish in Japan? I don't know. I don't know. I'm um, I, I I I'm trying to, to see on myself. Would 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 I yes. behave differently? How how much uh, am I uh, feeling 
um, at home uh, that is local when I, when I see colors or would I feel at un, in an unease uh, if if I had other colors and uh, mm -hmm. when, when I when I read that piece I was a little bit um, a little bit skeptical <laughs> maybe if you yeah. put yourself in the position of like would I buy McDonald's maybe you would because you already know the brand but if it's like a new brand that's trying to expand somewhere i don't know like when i go to like a websites that i have never been to before like the first impression the colors that come mm -hmm. at me and because maybe i'm a visual person it does tell me something yeah, yeah. i think that's that's it for me too it's like if it's a brand like mcdonald's I think people recognize that around the world that's yellow and red, you know, um, you just take it, that's the brand. Um, but when it's a new company or something new being marketed towards you, um, then you can, you can adapt it. So it's more pleasing or you sell more of that product there because it's more pleasing, you know, as far as the color, but, yeah, I I don't think localization only comes in place when the client is is so attuned to that and wants that type of input. But on our own, I don't think we would just change the you know color. We certainly again it depends on the client. Mostly they send you images to localize. You localize them and and that's that. You don't even know how they're using it too. You know. To, to, at best, you get to localize the text in the images, right? Because even that is right. sometimes not possible. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. The second part, and I'll just try to be a bit faster because uh, it's difficult to talk about the visual things. It's about country-specific design patterns. This is, again, very similar to the layout and the DTP, you could say. Uh, I'll just share with you one example of the Disney's homepage. Um, try to bring yourself into a position where you're trying to select a movie on a Netflix. And in our experience, we like to see a lot of images, a lot of things moving, um, and there's very little text. And based on the article, it says that we like our websites to be super straight to the point, very, we don't like to read much, and it should be something that catches our attention. On the other hand, the Japanese websites, they have a lot more text. And even, even a better example would be the Yahoo News website that is mentioned in the article. So if you think about your typical website where you go to look at the news there would be a lot of images the images would be there to catch your attention maybe there would be a big headline and maybe some text to make you click into the article uh, the japanese yahoo website actually has very little images which is surprising to me but it has a lot of text there so these are the design patterns and i can also share from my experience i know when i was living in thailand one of my friend was trying to set up an e-commerce website for what she was trying to sell. I think it was collagen. And I was really laughing at her website because it had all these crazy things moving around, you know, like the animated GIFs, you know, everything was moving, popping. And I was like, why, why do you do this? Like, this is not the trend of web design these days. But she told me that that's how Thai people 
expect from a website. That's that's what they want to see on the website. Maybe the feeling that it's, I don't know, fun, fun website instead of having like a nice, clean, minimalistic design, which I personally prefer. So I'm not sure if you guys have anything to share about these design patterns. Birka, you mentioned about the colors that you mm -hmm. actually do with the colors. Have you also come across anything like this where the layout gets changed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think today, uh, too, with all the e-commerce clients, uh, they are noticing in some countries people are shopping on their phones. Mm -hmm. So they don't go to a PC to order, I don't know, some herbal supplements. They they are riding on the train and they're going on a bus and they need to, they, they're killing time and they're also also uh, ordering from from the different sites. So they are realizing, uh, the clients are realizing that they have to make uh, less, put in less content, uh, which is kind of the goulash around <laughs> and concentrate on what they're selling. And how is that visually going to fit on a small screen? So I'm seeing those design changes to their websites um, to accommodate the the shopper uh, who is shopping on on a smaller device, on a tablet or or a phone. Um, so that so that that's being one. The other thing too, and you kind of touched on it, that at one point. Uh, and also um, now some years back, um, a lot of the user guides have moved from being text to a video. You know, now you have tutorial video for everything, because because again we are living in this instant world. People have two minutes to take a look at something, read it, and that they're not going to sit there and read for 15 minutes and then try to see how that's going to work you know, how they're going to repair their faucet or something. So <laughs> so there is more localizing videos, uh, use you know, the how-to videos, than the content before, which which we all had on all those websites. So so I can, that's what I'm seeing again. This, this was a big trend to move to the videos about maybe seven, six, seven years ago. Um, I thought it was quite revolutionary at the time. It's like, oh wow, that's cool. Now we're not gonna translate all this content, which was good in good revenue, but now we're just doing all these little, you know, how-to videos. Um, but <laughs> but but it seemed to continue. So I think people like it. People want to just kind of view something quickly and, and understand mm -hmm. how it works. Ilan, what about yeah. your experience? Yeah, I, I noticed the same trends. I want to say that the, 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 in the article, uh, they write that uh, the Yahoo page in Japan, Japanese looks like it's taken from 15 years ago and it's yes. really taken from 15 years ago. <laughs> oh, it is. Oh, it is. Yeah. No, I don't know if it is. But I, was, it, I, was, that's, yeah. I was checking the Japanese really... Yahoo website just before this call. And uh -huh. there are actually a little bit more pictures, but it's still the text prevails. There's still a lot. So of does that is that to mean that uh, Japanese people uh, read more and would be less uh, interested in video content, and they have more time 
they're more patient maybe or <laughs> that's a good question or maybe they have longer commutes so that's why <laughs> they have time to read <laughs> i don't know we don't have or, any japanese or, person here yeah or why why do they do they? because it's true if you, you take a the typical Japanese website, you, you will see these animated GIFs. You will see the manga like uh, the anime uh, pictures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, uh, it, it's, it's, it's different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, final thing that I want to share from the article is the small details. And this is very funny. Mm. In other words, it is important to understand the culture that you are trying to connect with when designing an application. And to demonstrate this, here we have examples of Subway and how the images on the Subway's uh, site look like. So for Americans, and I'm just going to quote this, as most of us know, Americans like food. <laughs> Often on food websites, companies will showcase large quantities and large amounts of food. On the Subway website, we see multiple foot-long sandwiches up top, as well as a stack of four sandwiches down below. Uh, on the contrary, the Japanese website looks quite different. Subway understood that Japanese consumers would prefer different portions, so they targeted the imagery to fit the clientele. On the Japanese website, we see single, small sandwiches with smaller coffees and soft drinks. So... That's that's the next level of localization, <laughs> where you cut the sandwich in half. <laughs> Another example that's here, that's I think what what Elon was sort of pointing out to is uh, the mobile app Line, which I was using. It's a messaging app similar to WhatsApp that's very popular in in Asia, in Thailand I think is number one, maybe also in Japan. And this is about the stickers that you can use within the app. So uh, Lion has their official mascots, which are quite popular in Asia. You can even buy the plush toys in some toy stores, which are based on the characters of Lion. But in this example, when Lion wanted to uh, expand and market in America, they created their own versions of the stickers. So for example, here we have an image of Linkin Park stickers. So. That's the article. So conclusion, uh, there are countless of elements to consider when designing applications for different cultures and countries. I hope that after reading this post, you can begin to see how manipulating these elements when creating cross-cultural designs can drastically improve the success of a product. When preparing to expand an application to a new country or culture, remember to always consider the four points we discussed. Colors, country-specific design patterns, uh, the small details, and the language compatibility, which is something that I didn't go into details because it's what I'm used to the most of the time, and that's basically making sure that the text can expand and fit uh, the same way as English. So, any thoughts about the small details of the subway sandwiches? <laughs> Vierka, again, <laughs> is that something that you have experienced? Not no. with the food, not with the food, but but I can see that, you know, I, I can see how that's important. I had an experience with something different. It had to do with uh, beverage, not food. 
and uh, suitability for campaigns around the world. So there was a client which had a beverage called Witch's Brew mm-hmm. for Halloween, right? And that in itself was a big challenge because some countries you cannot even mention a witch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Halloween <laughs> for that matter. So, so they had to get very creative in how to present or how to run that campaign, um, in parallel in the different countries. So, so that was, um, that I think that's, you know, another thing which, which we have to be aware of is culturally, um, some or politically, some, some products might not be well suited in, a, in its original source. And, and I think it's usually on the company to have that awareness. But when we in localization come in, in content, uh, in, um, contact in contact with something like that i think it really shows how seriously we take our jobs when we point that out to the client because they might Mm -hmm. be just kind of thinking only you know american american um markets they and then the localization is an afterthought and uh they because they see it's going to bring their bottom line um move it a notch. So so if we can be aware and if we can have that uh feel for for that source and actually open those files when they come to us and look at that source before we even send it for localization or listen to our linguists, you know, encourage them to log those queries to to um to make it make it uh the right localization. So so I think um, definitely everything you've been saying and reading, those are, those are, it's, it's music to my ears to see that people are taking the time to, to pay attention to the detail. But I would say in most cases, these, these decisions about the colors and the layout would be probably done by the marketing team mm-hmm. or somebody from inside the company because this really like affects. <clears throat> your product or your presentation like one of the things that i was also sharing before is if you think about let's say let's stick to mcdonald's mcdonald's has their own variants of their burgers in different parts of the world right to cater more to the local audience this is probably something that we wouldn't do as a localization providers right (laughs) like hey please put more salsa when you're selling in (laughs) latin america right so (laughs) localization taking it you know way out there (laughs) but good idea and good idea i'm still wondering like how you guys handled like what would you do if somebody asked you to translate like a halloween marketing promotional thing which says something about witch's drink in a country which doesn't have a Halloween and doesn't allow to talk about witches. Yeah. So then you, your next second um, fallback is magic. So you call it a magic, mm-hmm. magic potion, for example. You know, you can do something like that. But if magic is not allowed, which that's the case too for a lot of countries, then you can call it a fall festival drink, or you know, you <laughs> you just go to <laughs> to your next. 
denominator you can use. So, um, so yeah, that's when you work with the marketing team of the client and kind of uh, make those decisions together. But, but yeah, that, those, those challenges are out there for sure for being culturally correct as well. That's why I'm thinking if you guys ever had this chance to actually tell a client like, no, we shouldn't localize this actually. Like for example, when it comes to the Halloween, if like a certain country doesn't have a Halloween and there's no other holiday that you could adapt it to, would you at that point say, we shouldn't do this or we should, mm-hmm. I don't know, do the campaign later because there's another festival coming in in that country? Have you actually had this experience or is it purely theoretical? I have told to a client my <laughs> my opinion before, you know, when I feel that mm-hmm. that that something shouldn't be done or shouldn't be translated. Mm-hmm. But I think it definitely depends on the relationship you have with the client. You know, you have some where you are in that consultancy partnership with the client, and you have some where it's not possible. They just you have to do what you know you, mm-hmm. you set to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe Elon had. Better. Yeah, I, Halloween. I, I haven't been exposed yet, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I would probably suggest to to, to move to the next festival, which mm-hmm. is about disguise and hair. Uh, um, no, however, uh, what I have uh, met uh, fairly recently is a um, in a totally different subject, but. Uh, but it's it's really similar. Um, there is a a law in France that seriously regulates the uh, uh, advertising for uh, medical products. Okay, so you 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 can't uh, you can say whatever you want, basically. Uh, and there, uh, someone in the chain on the client side has gone just mad, uh, and and they interpret the law in a way that is really killing the marketing so remove all the pictures uh, don't say you don't mention anything i mean it's just facts your your marketing has become a fact sheet and and, and this is not really uh, the letter of the law in our understanding of it so so we brought it back and they didn't like it so <laughs> <laughs> so then, no, you go with the instructions because we have instructions and follow instructions. Right, so, right. so it's okay. Um, but yeah, it's somewhere, it's our duty to say, look, I know there's a law. I know the, the market has uh, specificities uh, and I'm going to share that with you. Now you, you make your decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you have to report. It's mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you know thing, but um, it's less creative than the witch thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Mirka, do you want to share well, your I, article? I actually have a hard stop in four minutes. Oh, it happened so, again. We didn't make it. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe we need to have part two, guys. <laughs> yeah, Elon already booked his spot, so I, I should know, do it again. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this was my my opportunity too. <laughs> you you already I'm contributed back. a lot by sharing your experience, so I'm very happy for that. So okay, in that case, let's let's wrap it up. Do you guys any have any final words? 
in the four minutes. Uh, ladies first. Well, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed <laughs> meeting Ilan. And uh, I think we Twice. should make it a regular thing. I think it would be... <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> uh, we, could, we could make it a regular um, news update. I was, I was just thinking about it because one of the biggest challenges for me is to always find new people for something. So far, I had only unique guests. But I was thinking that maybe I should put together a group that would just meet regularly. And that would make things much easier for me. Mm -hmm. So I see that I have two volunteers, so (laughs) it's a good start. (laughs) (laughs) So no, I think I think I think our world of localization is fascinating and and full of uh, great topics. So I really enjoyed uh, um, talking about this customization, and and, Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much for your insights, Elon and uh, Andre. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Great having you guys. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.